Texans have been struggling in the wake of severe winter storms and widespread power failures. Already the questions over the complex and technical causes of the crisis have become politicized. Some politicians and pundits are crying climate change and they're seizing on the crisis in Texas to call for more green energy as a solution. Now to reach a full objective analysis of the power failures in Texas, It's something that requires investigation and specialized expert knowledge. That's not our aim today. Instead, our goal is to look at the vital philosophic ideas that are shaping the policy debate now underway. And to do that, we'll be drawing on Ayn Rand's profound analysis of the environmental movement. Welcome to the New Ideal podcast. I'm Yulan Jurno, and I'm joined today by my colleague, Keith Lockich. Hello. Hey, Keith. Now, for those of you watching the live stream, it's great to have you with us. We'll aim to take some questions uh, posted to YouTube Super Chat if you'd like to post them there. Now, Keith, I want to get started by uh, sharing something that I've, I found really striking. Um, now, I, one, one thing I observed when we were talking uh, about this earlier is that the debate really got politicized almost instantaneously. And it, it was... Uh, one thing that I noticed is people were treating the problem or the, the sort of the causes of the problem, the crisis as obvious and sort of rushing to their favorite solution. And I, I want to just share this quote from Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez. I think this is from a tweet. I read it in the newspaper. I'm not sure what the source of it was. Uh, and so here's what she said. And I think this is sort of typical of the attitude that's come up in the debate. Quote, the infrastructure failures in Texas are quite literally what happens when you don't pursue a Green New Deal. That's that's the quote she has to say. So I would just throw that to you, Keith, and tell me, what do you think of that? How do you process it? Yeah, I, I observed the same thing. And I mean, this is, this is part of the reason why I think we're deliberately uh, taking the position that we're not here to adjudicate the what happened in texas because we don't you know the, the i think there's something important about the state of our culture and and the lack of respect for expert knowledge i don't know how the electricity market works in texas you know there's there's so many factors that went in here but what you see is people immediately rushing to the stage to pontificate on what did happen even though you know the causes are quite complicated and then you have people like um like AOC, immediately jumping to this as as proof that her policy agenda is the one that we need to adopt. Now, so it's true that the causes of the Texas crisis are complicated, and we're not going to spend a lot of time. I want to say just one thing about it, which is that it's the... um, it's true that the causes of what happened are complicated and there's a lot of information you can find out about what went on. But the idea that the solution... To, to a crisis like this is anything like the Green New Deal or the Biden climate energy plan is pretty clearly wrong. I mean, the one thing we can say about Texas, I mean, what you had was a failure of the electricity grid uh, to respond reliably to a spike in demand. And what, what you need to have a, a reliable, resilient electricity supply is generating capacity that can respond to fluctuations in demand for electricity, right? Now, the now wind and solar are not forms of electricity that respond to demands for electricity. They're not forms of electricity that you can turn on and off at will. I mean, they respond to the wind blowing and the sun shining. So they have, so they're, they're fluctuating sources of electricity that have almost nothing to do with 
actual demand on the grid. So, you know, you have Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and the media I and mean, the New York Times is pushing the view that Texas is somehow proof that we need to double down on the Biden climate and energy policy agenda. But there's literally no like alternate reality in which having more solar and wind, you know, would have been the solution, would have done anything to prevent what happened in Texas. In fact, it's definitely the case that it would have made the situation far worse than it even was. So, you know, what I think we, pull, we can, should pull from this is there's, the, there's a huge disconnect between, you know, the claims about what we need to be doing to ensure stable, reliable energy for the future and the views on these issues that dominate the culture. I mean, AOC is not some kind of outlier, right? Um, her, the view that she expressed is, is kind of the dominant mainstream view. Um, and, and it's completely disconnected from reality. So let's dig into that. How do you think of this disconnect? Because it's significant. It's not just a small thing, right? Yeah. And, and as you said in the open, I mean, I mean, it's, it's connected with the rise of the environmentalist movement over the last, you know, half century or so. And that's really, I think, what we wanted to talk about today. Uh, you know, 50 years ago, Ayn Rand published her book, The New Left, The Anti-Industrial Revolution. And one of the essays in that book was a talk that she gave in 1970 called The Anti-Industrial Revolution. And, and this is, was her analysis of the kind of then nascent environmentalist movement. And I think what we, I, the reason we wanted to do this podcast today and to focus on this is it's, it's, it's worth looking really closely at that, at that talk and at that essay. Because um, Rand was really ahead of her time in identifying the essential nature of the environmentalist movement and what it would lead to if its goals were to be adopted. Um, you know, so in the late 60s, she was observing the rise of what was then referred to as, as kind of the ecology movement, right? Um, and at the time, it was viewed as a kind of a fringe movement. And it was an element of, the, of what was also talked about at the time, uh, the so-called new left. So again, in the, in the 60s, you had a lot of commentators talking about the rise of the new left in contrast to the old left, which was associated with the kind of older generation of hardcore Marxist intellectuals and apologists for Soviet communism that you saw you know, more in the, in the early part of the 20th century. And so she's situating her analysis of environmentalism within the bigger context of, of the shift from the old left to the new left. And, and her analysis of, you know, why that shift occurred and what gave rise to it um, is, is really, it's one of the things that she goes into in the book, um, in, in various essays in the book. And it's really illuminating and it gives, I, I think, deep insight into why environmentalism is one of the perspectives that the new left adopted. Um, so we could talk about that now, I think. Yeah, I think it's useful just to, to add some context for people listening and watching that what was discussed at the time, what was the new left? How did it contrast with online Marxists? And I think one of the main points of difference as Ayn Rand ana analyzed the difference between them. So the new left was a, a term that was current at the time. It wasn't her particular term. But I think one of the main points of difference is that if you look at Marxist writings over decades and decades, 
their view was that industrialization, industrial society and technology were things that belonged in society and they were important. It was just that capitalism wasn't the system to keep them going, but the socialist system on this theory was gonna do better at industrialization and better at advancing technology. And so the, the thrust of it was that Marxism positioned itself and its thinkers positioned themselves as in favor of progress and advancement of human society. And now this was a, I mean, it's a myth. It's, it's completely false. It's not borne out by facts or history. And yet this is the way Marxism was seen. It was, it was scientific socialism, right? So it was really couching itself in that kind of language. What the new left comes along and does in Ayn Rand's analysis is drop the, the focus on progress, on industrialization, on science. And really fundamentally, if you think of it, what's philosophically going on here, it's dropping the, the pretense of having reason on its side. And so this is a big change, so a, a real cleavage in that intellectual moral uh, movement and I think that's sort of that goes to the core of her view of what the ecology movement is. And, and so, in a sense, if you have socialist thinking minus this stress on progress, minus industrialization, and not just uh, sort of downplaying it, but in fact turning against it. So the idea is that originally Marxists complained that capitalism, um, you know, it, it was it was creating too much, right? Now. So this is part of the new critique is that, yeah, this is a problem. We have too many things. We shouldn't be doing this. Uh, and this is, I think, yeah. goes to the ecology movement is an outgrowth of this new left perspective. Like, who cares about progress? Yeah. So the, so the old line Marxist point of view was that capitalism is inefficient. It can't produce. And that, you know, you had you had leaders. You know, you had the Soviet leaders in the early part of the 20th century saying, "We're we we will bury the West. You know, we're going to outproduce the West. We're going to outindustrialize. We're going to, you know, uh, we're we're going to take over the world with industrial progress." And of course, I mean, from Rand's perspective, this is all nonsense because what what makes progress possible? What makes uh, you know science, technology, industry? you know, economic progress possible is the, is the freedom of the individual mind. And the idea that, a, that statist collectivist central planning is, is able to do this, you know, and, and the idea that, um, so, yeah, so, so it was a, it was, it was a, it was a, you know, a, what a, sort of a big lie to begin with. And Rand's perspective is that um, it's in the aftermath of World War II and you know through the 1960s where you can where you can take you have almost these scientific experiments you take west berlin and east berlin you know and west germany and east germany you divide it in half one is sort of relatively free markets and relatively capitalistic and the other one is dominated by soviet style communism you just put them side by side and you see human progress and flourishing and well-being on the on the west side and total stagnation poverty tyranny uh, dictatorship on the other side. So her view is that by the time you get to the 1960s, it's too obvious to ignore or evade the reality that collectivism can't produce. And so she says, in effect, the left leftist intellectuals were faced with a choice. Do you continue to embrace the goal of industrial and technological progress and, and recognize 
that statism, collectivism, altruism doesn't produce that and what you need to embrace is capitalism or not. And she says, in effect, the new left and, and the environmentalist movement as an out, outgrowth of that is the, the leftist intellectuals rejecting the goal of industrialization and human progress. I, I just wanna read a quote because I think this captures this uh, element of review. She says, quote, if, if, if concern with poverty and human suffering were the collectivist motive, they would have become champions of capitalism long ago. They would have discovered that it's the only political system capable of producing abundance, but they evaded the evidence as long as they could. When the issue became overwhelmingly clear to the world, the collectivists were faced with a choice, either turn to the right in the name of humanity or to the left in the name of dictatorial power. And she says they turned to the left, the new left. Instead of their old promises that collectivism would create universal abundance and their denunciations of capitalism for creating poverty, they're now denouncing capitalism for creating abundance. You know, instead of promising comfort and security for everyone, they're now denouncing people for being comfortable and secure. And I think this brings us back to the question about what, what really are the goals of the environmentalist movement? Because, you know, the general perception that people have about environmentalism is that its goal is to preserve the environment for the sake of advancing human flourishing and human well-being. And I think Ayn Rand was one of the first people to really question that dogma and, and to look closely at what the at, at what the stated goals and the ideals of the environmentalist movement are and what they would really look like if they were actually put into practice. Um, and that that you know what she identified is that their goal is is not um, to preserve the environment for the sake of human well-being. It's to preserve it's to it's to it's to preserve sort of wild nature um, from human imposition and from human interference. Um, and, and so it, what it's really trying to do is to stop us from interfering with nature and, and you know, from, from, in effect, from producing and from, from industrializing and developing and, and creating a human world. I think we should say more about that. I just want to make a point here in connection to the way people think of these issues today versus how she was seeing the rise of a new phenomenon, a new movement intellectually. And I think it, there, there's a, a, a major difference and it speaks to the spread and, and mainstreaming of environmentalism. As you mentioned, it was, it was sort of, it was a fringe phenomenon initially and she was early in noticing it and, and anticipating its significance. So I think the way people think of environmentalism isn't as an ism anymore. It's that it's, it's just the common sense view. It's what it means to be scientific. It's obvious in many ways that, of course, nobody wants to harm the planet. Nobody wants to pollute the water and pollute the air. And we all want clean air, clean water, and so forth. And the, the assimilation of environmentalist ideas, so this movement's assimilation into the mainstream and becoming the default position for people, it's just the sensible pro-science perspective, as many people think of it, speaks to, uh, I think, both how she was perceptive, Ayn Rand was perceptive about the way this movement was going to uh, move forward. But I think it doesn't change the fact that it is an ism. It's, it's a set of ideas fundamentally. And I think part of her analysis, which I think we will we'll get into 
as we go into her view of what it means for environmentalist ideas to succeed, part of her analysis is that environmentalism is not primarily a claim about scientific facts and dangers and risks that we face. It's not primarily concerned with those things. It's, it's a certain perspective. It's an ideological movement. It's primarily driven by ideas about what society should look like. And the science comes in or, and it's co-opted and it's perverted in various ways. And there's real issues that are mixed in there. Like there's things like smog and then we can talk about, but, but the, those aren't the driving force of what this movement is about. And that goes to your point, Keith, that you said that she, she was really incisive in, in recognizing that it's a mistake to see the ecology movement as it was at the beginning or environmentalism as it was in the last decades or, or the way people, that those ideas have become mainstream today as primarily concerned with human well-being, both in its, in its genesis and in its, in its logic of its position. I think that's, it's a devastating critique when you take it seriously. And I think we should talk more about what it looks like in practice, but I think it's important to contrast the way the ism has kind of fallen off uh, and become a conventional view in effect. Yeah, I mean, well, let's let's set that up by by looking at some of the evidence. This is some of the, some of the evidence that she refers to, and some of the evidence that we can look back, you know, with fifty years of of um, you know looking at what the environmentalist movement has advocated and what has come to pass. So, you know, one of the things that she notes is the you you talked about the idea that they, there's a claim to science, which is really not. Uh, legitimate or or it's a phony claim to science. So there's a pattern of making apocalyptic predictions, you know, and in the 60s, you had Paul Ehrlich, uh, the, the author of The Population Bomb, predicting, you know, this population explosion. And it, it's the, the idea that, you know, and this is an idea that goes back centuries, of course, uh, you know, uh, back to Malthus and beyond, the idea that that population growth is going to outstrip food production to a point where people are literally starving. And he pre made predictions of, you know, hundreds of millions of people dropping dead from starvation around the globe. And this is right at the time when the world was on the eve of the so-called green revolution, not green as in environmentalism, but green as in agriculture. Um, you had Norman Borlaug, the pioneer of this, um, green revolution, developing all these new strains of wheat and this sort of thing. And in, so instead of, the 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 this mass death as a result of humans over being you know over consuming and and draining all the earth's resources instead what you have is such a massive increase in food production you know if you look at uh, you know that 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 it, it rendered all these apocalyptic claims just to be nonsense and 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 this is a pattern that you see over and over again there's all kinds of claims about um, about the, the uh, catastrophic effects that will result from human beings, you know, having too great an impact on the earth, right? But if you look at the data, I mean, if you, there's all kinds of, there's a whole literature now of, of books and, you know, there's this great website, Our World in Data, but you have a whole bunch of people like Steven Pinker and his book Enlightenment Now, you have, you know, Matt Ridley. I mean, there's a whole bunch of people who are, who point to, you know, by every measure of human well-being, what we've seen since the Industrial Revolution 
is, is completely steady and unwavering progress in life expectancy, in food production, you know, in, in levels of poverty. It's just every, every measure of human well-being has shown unwavering improvement in contrast to these apocalyptic claims that the environmentalist movement continues to issue. Um, and so this is, this is a big part of the evidence that, uh, that you can use to, um, to recognize. So uh, actually, we, we got a super chat question that says, do you think environmentalism is similar to a religion? Uh, so thank you for the super chat donation. Um, but I think this is exactly where I'm going with the point that I'm making is, is these, these environmental ideals and ideas are held in total defiance of all the, all the actual evidence that we have about measures of human well-being. Um, and, you know, every single uh, apocalyptic claim, you know, is, is they make a prediction 10 years out, 10 years later, nothing happens. And, and so again and again, what you see is the, what's driving this is, is a certain uh, set of philosophical and ideological premises, not, you know, not primarily a focus on facts and science and, and that sort of thing. I think just to build on what you said regarding this uh, parallel with religion, I think there's, there's even, there's more to say in this vein. If you think about the if you sort of transpose some of what we hear, if you accept that it's not primarily about the science and you then transpose some of the claims we hear, the apocalyptic warnings that don't come true. I mean, that's definitely a mark of early religions were expecting the world to end. I think Christianity is one of those mystery cults that became a worldwide phenomenon. We started with the premise that, well, we're about to see the end of days. Obviously that didn't happen, but this whole idea that there's an apocalypse coming and I think if you tie it into the moral thinking uh, of um, religion and, and the idea that there is a, a sin for which we have to atone and there are, there's a sacrifice that's required of us, that definitely maps on to what we hear today. And the, and the way in which I think many people hold environmentalist ideas, they probably don't recognize that they're holding them and that these are... Uh, these ideas they should contest and challenge, but yet the, the way we're expected to take certain measures to alleviate problems, which are not obviously problems are not established as problems in many cases, and that the, the remedies themselves don't really do anything. I think a, a good example of this is I, I've read that a lot of the uh, recycling that is collected and sorted it's just not economically viable to then recycle some of this material. So it's just, it just gets shipped somewhere and falls into landfills because it's not economically worthwhile. And it actually, I don't think it does very much good in that. And so it, it, you have this whole pattern of there's a, there's a sin or our, our whole engagement with nature where we're corrupting of nature. So therefore we have to atone for that sin by all sorts of sacrifices, doing less, driving less, um, using fewer materials, uh, and this whole perspective that there is now some higher end above human life to which we have to sacrifice. And so it, I think this gives the lie to the idea that it's concerned with human well-being. It is not. It's, it's a, I think it's a system that is calculated to orient you towards the sacrifice of values for no real sacrifice. So the surrender of a higher value to a lesser value. I think that speaks to, so there's many dimensions in which 
there are strong similarities between what is environmentalism and religion. And I think it's worth having a conversation about that at some time. Uh, but thank you for the super chat donations. Again, those of you who want to ask questions, you're welcome to uh, submit them through that channel. Yeah, uh, let Keith, me. Uh, what we wanted to cover. Why don't we? Uh, do you want to? Yeah, uh, sorry. Well, just to pick up on what you were just saying, and we got a question over Zoom, which I think is relevant to the next point that I wanted to make, um, which is. So the question is, what if we extrapolate from Ayn Rand's beautiful philosophy developed when we had not reached the limits of our globe and then ask what would be the solution to climate change and the rough time estimates we now face without an environmentalist movement, what would we do? Um, so this is exactly, so climate, the, the climate issue is, 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 is exactly in line with the pattern that I'm describing. So first of all, the the there's no question that uh, that um, you know man-made carbon emissions are contributing to changes in the climate. So that's let's just push that you know th that issue off the table to begin with. So that that that's that's unquestionably true, etc. The the thing that people push back on when you talk about climate change is 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 the question of whether we it feeds in exactly with this question of of these apocalyptic claims. So what people challenge, you know, people who challenge the climate change narrative, it's not that they challenge the idea that that climate change is a real phenomenon. It's the question of whether what we face is, a, is an unmanageable catastrophe, an apocalyptic catastrophe that requires uh, the kinds of measures that people are advocating, you know, which really amounts to almost a total reduction in our emissions of carbon dioxide. Now, you know, so the idea that we've reached the limits of our globe, for instance, or that, you know, the, and the, the question asked about rough time estimates, time estimates we now face. So the problem is that the, the, the claim that we reach the limits of our globe, the claim that we face time estimates of the kind, you know, you have people like Greta Thunberg and AOC saying that, you know, unless we adopt radical climate policy uh, choices immediately, the world's going to end by 2030. So this is exactly the kind of apocalyptic claim that that we're that you know I think Ayn Rand would have rejected and that we're rejecting. It's what it, the if you again if you look at all every measure of human well-being, including things like um, agricultural production, you know, when you talk about reaching the limits of our globe, we're nowhere there we're nowhere near reaching the limits of what the human mind is capable of if we leave it free to invent and create and produce. So the so if you're if what you're worried about is uh, the risks of climate catastrophes and extreme weather events and that sort of thing, then what you should be advocating for is is absolute laissez-faire capitalism free people's free the free people's minds to innovate and produce and create and leave us free to build the kind of resilience and uh and and um industrial development that actually makes human progress and human well-being possible um so um <clears throat> so it's it's uh one, one again thought on 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 that keith just if i can jump in so the 
for people who are concerned about some of the claims that we're going to run out of either space or resources, I think that this is something that's been studied. And I think it's worth investigating just to, so that you don't, you know, don't just take what we're saying for granted to go, go find out. Is this really true? What would happen if there's an important resource that we just run out of? Is it, I mean, it, it's conceivable that that would happen. Now, what would happen? And it, as, you, as you really stressed, I think this is an important factor. If people are left free, if there's an important resource that we need for manufacturing technology, you know, maybe we need it for circuit boards or maybe we need it for, for cars or something like that. Think of a resource that is that you think is going to become scarce. What would happen if people are left free to solve that problem? And I think the pattern across history, as, as I've from the reading that I've done, is people find alternatives, they find solutions to it. And then often they find it way before you reach the, the final ounce of whatever it is that you're trying to to worry about that is becoming scarce and, and the reason for that is the one thing that it gets dropped out of the context of a lot of these apocalyptic accounts is well what would people do if they faced a real problem with one of these situations like if if you take like smog as a real problem right now there's ways you can mitigate it and there's ways you can tackle it but you don't wait until we're all choking and, and you know collapsing on the sidewalks before you tackle it and I think the, the whole, the, the, the X factor that's missing from a lot of these apocalyptic stories just is the human mind and its capacity to solve problems and move human life forward. And this whole idea of the engine of progress, and this is Ayn Rand's fundamental insight that she, she really illuminated, is that the human mind has a central role in the creation of human values and in moving society forward. It's the power behind technology and science. So whenever there are scarcities of resources where you think that we're going to uh, have some sort of cataclysmic problem the thing to do is to leave people free to solve whatever is a legitimate actual problem and i think you see this with so uh, you mentioned malthus i think earlier about the, this worry about uh, we won't have enough uh, things for people to eat as the population grows and there's he has these charts and graphs to show this is what it looks like and we're, we're heading in this well, what happened is people came up with ways to make land more fertile, and they found ways to make agriculture more efficient. And so not to say that everything Malthus worried about was a real problem, but if you worried about something like that, if you think there's a concern, if there is a real concern, it's the, the, the way to tackle it is to leave people free to solve it. And that's exactly what you would want anyone who's concerned with human life to be at the barricades for. Okay, this is what you would need to fight for. And yet that's exactly the opposite of what you hear from people who are championing environmentalist solutions. It's not let's have the best idea in, in a free market by the best minds come to some sort of resolution. It's we're going to tell you how to solve this. And it's going to require a fundamental and possibly cataclysmic sacrifice on your part. It's going to change your life to, from top to bottom, you're not going to be able to drive the car you want. You won't be able to live where you want. It's it's a fundamental downgrading of human life, as you know, from top down. I think that is a telling signal. Yeah, I think, and and the whole issue of green energy, and then just the energy policy, I think is is a is a really perfect example of that. Because if you um, if you look at like I think one of the things, one of the lessons you can definitely take from what happened in Texas is just how crucial a role energy plays in our lives. And one of the problems is that people, people take 
in general, people take technology for granted. You know, they take it for granted. This stuff is all around us. We don't know how it got here. We don't pay much attention to what's required to produce it and create it. We just, you know, we have our phones, we have our computers, we have our cars, we have, we, we have this incredible standard of living all around us. And we have, and most of us have no idea what it, what is required to make all of that happen. And this is, this is certainly true for energy as well. You know, when we go to flick the light switch, the lights come on. And when, if we go to turn the heat up, the heat turns on. We don't give much thought to what it takes for that to happen um, until you have a crisis like Texas. And then everyone's, you know, uh, uh, it suddenly becomes an urgent issue. But the thing is that um, the, the environmentalist movement is, has consistently opposed every actually viable form of energy uh, from its inception, I mean, the first huge campaign was was the anti-nuclear movement, and the the incredible campaigning against nuclear energy um, has created such a huge morass of regulatory uh, structures. You know that it's that this is partly why nuclear is so prohibitively expensive, and all these you have all these uh, concerns about about the cost of nuclear, most of that is purely a result of, you know, kind of regulatory um, structures that, that add to the costs. Uh, so, and now you have this huge push against, um, you know, all forms of fossil fuel energy. The reality is that more than, you know, if you take fossil fuel plus nuclear, I mean, that's basically where all of our energy comes from. You know, the idea that you can power our civilization with the, with wind and solar, you know, which which um, today are, are a pretty small fraction of our energy supply. And as we talked about right at the beginning of the podcast, they're, they're not, they don't represent sort of reliable, stable base load energy supply. They're, they, they're, they add this, you know, uh, unstable, fluctuating component to grid that has to be offset by even more fossil fuel backup capacity. Um, so, you know, the, the, the fact that the environmentalist movement has been consistently opposed to all the forms of energy that we actually need to keep our civilization going, I think is, is strong evidence of what the real goal is and what the, uh, and, and the kinds of sacrifices that will be demanded of us if they're if those goals are actually achieved yeah i think it's it's significant that we often hear crises used in this way so we mentioned we started with the situation in texas which is really severe i mean it's one of the richest most energy rich states in general and it, it, it you can see why people are trying to make sense of it but whenever there's a hurricane or whenever there is some damage caused by flooding, each of these is taken as obvious further evidence that we're heading down this road to calamity. And, and you've, you've talked about this in other contexts, about the, so the science behind the concerns regarding hurricanes and the, the severe weather. And I think there's some there's real scientific questions to, to understand there, but part of what happens in this debate, I think, is that it gets colored immediately by the moral goals, the goals driven by moral ideas here, that anything is taken as, well, this is just more support for what we already know has to happen, as opposed to, well, what's actually going on? I think the, the underlying driving force is this idea 
civilization as we know it needs to change and it needs to go backwards in time. And there, there are people on the environmentalist side who will deny this. They'll say, no, of course, it's not what we want. We really want just clean air and everyone to live happily. But I think the logic of their position, as we've been trying to argue and give some evidence for, is that it devalues what is fundamental about the world we live in, which is the, it's, it's a post-industrial civilization. We, we're the beneficiaries and we take for granted, as you pointed out earlier, Keith, we take for granted the immense achievement that was created thanks to the scientific revolution and then the industrial revolution, which are things that just aren't well known or understood. And you know, the focus of a lot of people is their day-to-day -day and the kind of technology that they take for granted. There isn't an appreciation that, but for the industrial revolution, none of us would be here, let alone watching something on the internet with technology that is just, it is mind-bogglingly advanced and, and impressive and admirable, but it just, the, the prevalence of electricity that more people around the world have access to electricity than, than ever in, in human history. All of this is the fruit of an industrial society and it's something to celebrate. It's not something to find and undermine, which I think the undermining of the industrial civilization is, is the, to me, the, 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 the moral crime involved here that we see from people pushing environmentalist ideas. And, and I think this goes to, I wanna circle back to um, the book that you mentioned earlier, Ayn Rand's book, The Anti-Industrial Revolution. I think that really goes to the heart of her analysis, which is, I mean, we should sort of unpack that a bit, but it just, she has a, a, a profoundly positive appreciation for what made the Industrial Revolution possible and what it, its myriad manifestations in our lives look like and how we take it for granted. And then what it looks like if you go against that and you, go, you, you kind of take a, an anti-industrial perspective. And I think this is one of the most powerful things in that essay right at the beginning when she starts to say, well, let's dramatize what this really looks like. And what does our world look like when we don't have all these things? Yeah. And, and one of the points that she makes, so she, so she, as you say, she starts their talk or she starts the essay with the sort of fictionalized account of what the world would be like if, if environmentalists, you know, aims were actually put into practice. And it's sort of this grim picture of a guy, you know, who, who all the, all the so-called luxuries of technology are, are gone and so on. Um, and, you know, but the, one of the points that she makes, uh, is the part of the reason people don't recognize what what the actual goals are is precisely because they take technology for granted and they don't and they they um you know even though they 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 don't connect all the dots to see that uh what it would actually look like if the goals were put into practice so again i think coming back to the issue of energy i think so i i have an essay on on the environmentalist position on energy um, from a few years ago that I think makes an attempt to really connect all these dots. And I think we talked a little bit, of, I, I talked a little bit about how you have environmental groups opposed to every major, obviously the, every major form of fossil fuel energy, also nuclear, um, you also see opposition to hydro. But I think the thing that really clinches it for me is when you see environmentalist opposition to solar and wind, you have you have you know solar and wind 
projects that are, are uh, planned for certain areas and you have environmental groups leading the charge saying, oh, you're not going to you know, go develop, you know, create a huge solar development in the desert or something like that. that would, that's you know, interfering with nature. So um, I think that th these are the kinds of pieces of evidence that you need to put together to see what are the actual goals here and what is the, where is all this, you know, where would all this actually lead if it were put into practice? And I mean, just coming back to what we said at the, at the beginning, the idea that people could be advocating more wind and solar, you know, that, that what we saw in Texas is proof that we need more, more windmills, you know, uh, so that what they can all, they can also not generate electricity when when the wind dies down during during this incident. Um, it, it's just it's 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 you you it, it it makes you it gives rise to the need to look more deeply at the ideas underlying the movement to to make sense of what's going on. I was just going to say I think that that would be something that would be good to recommend for people to. Take, if they want to explore Ayn Rand's perspective, which I think is really challenging compared to the conventional views out there, and it's it's sophisticated and nuanced. So she she, she takes seriously the, the the sort of the context of people who are hearing about the initial claims made in the name of the ecology movement, as it was called at the time. And I think she, her analysis is really insightful. And it, it it you know a lot of people talk about. This so that prediction didn't age well. I think the the, the takeaway from reading the anti-industrial revolution is that not only did she get a lot right, I think she got the fundamental right, that it this has just become more and more validated. I mean, her analysis is more validated by the experience of the last 50 years since she uh, put this, uh, she, she brought this out. So I recommend that people take a look at that. I think you mentioned uh, another essay regarding her analysis of the, the old versus the new left. I think people can take a look at that on our website. I think that's published on einrand.org, and you can find excerpts yeah, in the lexicon, Einrand lexicon. And so I think with that, why don't we wrap it up uh, and just sort of final thoughts about what you know, any concluding observations? Well, um, you know, there, there's a lot in her essay that we didn't really cover. Um, we just sort of touched on some of the points that she makes there, but um, it, it's it's uh, it's definitely worth it's definitely worth you can you can hear the talk version of the of the anti-industrial revolution on on our website, um, and you can obviously read it in the book, The New Left: The Anti-Industrial Revolution. Um, it's worth looking at how she really lays out and unpacks the her analysis of the environmentalist movement because. There, there's so much that's um, you know so prescient, and you know when you read it and you think this was 50 years ago, it's it's amazing you know to see how clear-eyed she was about you know what was what was coming with this movement. So, um, and I think we have some links to some of my articles on these subjects as well. So, yeah, and you should you should uh, we we've, we have Keith's article on our online here, the Green New Deal, a war against energy. I highly recommend you take a look at that. You can find a lot of these resources on our journal, New Ideal. Now, a final thought I just want to share before we wrap up for today is I think one of the points that comes out from looking at Ayn Rand's analysis from 50 years ago and then thinking about what has happened in society since then. I made the point earlier, and I think it really bears emphasis that the 
the environmentalist movement has gone mainstream and the fact that it has really interesting. And I think it's a, it's a further illustration of a different point that Ayn Rand has made, which is that to understand culture and society and the direction it takes, it's important to see the, the fundamental ideas that are shaping it. I think in this case, it's certain ideas about morality that underlie the environmentalist conception of what they're doing that are really essential to understanding how we got to the point where it's not an ism in many people's mind, it's just the normal way to look at the world. Uh, and that's, I think it's, it's, it's a, a really sad outcome where we are. And I think it was another perspective on her view is that unless this sort of thing is opposed by rational ideas, by a rational perspective, by people looking at the world objectively and taking a, a moral framework that is human life-centered, and that's, I think, essential to her perspective, unless that's done, these sort of evil ideas, and I think they are evil and, and they lead to heinous outcomes, this is what would happen unless you really oppose them. So I, I think there's a lot to be gained from uh, sort of understanding how this phenomenon has become such a, a established part of our culture. Uh, so, and if people are interested in that, we have a conference coming up uh, that will talk about Ayn Rand's analysis of how ideas shape a society and how I, people who, who speak about and write about ideas, intellectuals are central to the direction of a culture. So that's coming up in March, if you're interested. Uh, there's a lot to be said uh, and explored uh, in that direction. So finally, I would encourage everyone who's listening to us uh, on YouTube, if you are there, we'd love for you to, to subscribe so you hear more about what we do. And if you like what you're hearing, like the video and share it and, and give us your comments. We, we always read the comments, we don't always reply, but we take them into heart. And sometimes they lead to other programming. If you're on Facebook or other social media, please like and share what you're viewing. Uh, that helps us get to a larger audience. We appreciate your support. And finally, if you have uh, feedback about this or other of our programs, We'd love to hear from you. You can write to us, newideal at aynrand.org. We read everything. We try to answer as much as we can. Uh, and we'd like to hear your suggestions or comments and feedback. So we hope to see you here next time. Thanks for watching. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.